One thing I would like to mention here is one of the treatments of PMS or PMDD is actually it's collaborative and the management rather is collaborative. And it is important for partners, family members, friends to understand this as well and know that this can happen. It will pass and how they can actually work with the individual to accommodate this. And I mentioned sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy can be manifest in so many ways. It is just penetrative, you know, sex is not mm. the only way of intimacy. There can be other ways in which uh, the person going through PMS may wish to uh, express um, so may just want cuddles, for example, okay? That is still, I think, romantic and sexual intimacy. So it's about just looking at, I think, things in a slightly different way or adapting. I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. In today's episode, we look at hormonal health. There's all days, weeks, or even months that many women feel not quite themselves. And it can be really difficult to place our finger on exactly why that is. Part of it could be down to our hormonal health. A large majority of women suffer with premenstrual syndrome, also known as PMS. And it can really affect people's quality of lives. There's also many physical symptoms that go along with our hormonal health, such as bloating, cramping, gastro problems. The list can be endless. And many women listening to this will already be relating to the monthly encounters that they have regarding their hormones. So the real question is, what can we do? How can we manage these symptoms? And how do we know when to look out for changes that might not be normal? To help me explore this further and in deeper conversation, I speak to Effia Yasmin. Effia Yasmin is a sub-specialist in reproductive medicine. She is also a senior clinical lecturer in UCL. Effia is an expert in her field, and I'm thrilled to have her on today to help us explore further our hormonal health. Effia, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I am absolutely thrilled. And thank you for taking time out of your very busy job in the NHS to come and speak to us this morning. Before we get into everything regarding hormonal health, menstruation, all the things that women have to cope with on a month-to-month basis. Can you just give us a brief description of who you are? Okay. Uh, So I'm a consultant gynaecologist. I work at the University College London Hospital, 
And within gynecology, again, you have some sort of specialisms or what we call subspecialties. And I, um, or my subspecialty is a reproductive medicine, okay? And which means um, kind of knowing about hormones and dealing with problems related to hormones is part of my uh, remit. I also work as an adolescent gynecologist. So I'm a fertility specialist as well as an adolescent gynecologist. Uh, so that also gives me an insight into, you know, hormonal problems uh, quite common, for example, or menstrual disturbances quite common uh, in uh, the uh, teenagers and young adults. Wow, how fascinating. I feel like everyone who's listening to this immediately is going to be gripped because it's something not just myself personally, but all of my friends, family, um, women that are in my lives, you know, all talk about their hormones and their menstrual cycle. And everyone has such a different experience and everyone is so individual. So I think before we actually get onto hormones, which is probably a large majority of the questions that have come my way regarding hormonal balance. Can we first start off by just talking about the menstrual cycle? And can we break it down to the different stages that occur during your menstrual cycle? To understand menstruation, I'll just talk about an axis, okay? So that means when puberty starts, uh, there are certain changes. And it is like an orchestra where one event leads to, you know, a, a another. It's a choreographed event almost. And these hormones, you know, we are talking about hormones, they are messengers, okay? So one will trigger something in another organ, which in turn will make something else happen, okay? So that's how kind of it uh, uh, works out. Uh, so it all starts in the brain. Uh, in our brain is an area from which we get a signal, a hormonal signal called gonadotropin, hormone-releasing hormone. I mean, we don't need to remember all these uh, words, but essentially just a signal from the brain that comes in a pulse. And then it signals another gland within our brain called a pituitary gland, from which two important hormones, both for males and females, um, are released. They are called follicle-stimulating hormone, and luteinizing hormone. Now, this follicle-stimulating hormone, as its name suggests, works on the ovary to stimulate follicles. Follicles are little sacs with fluid inside where the egg resides. Okay, so it stimulates the follicles in the ovary, and usually one will become dominant. So when it receives the stimulation, it then starts growing and releasing the hormone estrogen. Now, what estrogen does is it acts on the womb, the lining of the womb, and makes the cells in the lining grow. So, it makes the lining grow. Then, as the follicle is growing and releasing more and more estrogen, this estrogen then sends a signal back to the pituitary gland and says, okay, it's time for ovulation. So, when it reaches its peak, it triggers the release of luteinizing hormone called LH. Okay, we'll use the terms FSH and LH to describe these. And ovulation occurs. After ovulation, this follicle then becomes a structure called corpus luteum and starts releasing progesterone. So the lining grew, 
the progesterone starts and makes some changes in the lining to make it very nice and inviting for the embryo. So if fertilization, so if egg and sperm were to meet and embryo were to develop, then it makes a bed for the embryo to implant. Now, if this event doesn't take place, then what happens? The estrogen and progesterone fall because the corpus luteum regresses, the structure, okay? It regresses. If a pregnancy were to occur, the structure carries on for a longer period of time and cells from the pregnancy, which is called um, trophoblast that forms the placenta, also starts producing estrogen, progesterone, and then, you know, there's no menstruation. So when there is withdrawal of the hormone, estrogen and progesterone, there's no support to the lining anymore. So the lining starts to shed. So when the lining sheds, the blood vessels just behind get exposed and you see blood, which is menstruation. I hope that's clear and explains what the menstrual cycle is and also all the hormonal peaks and troughs and plateaus in between that occur in the cycle. And so this normally, I mean, this could vary for everybody, but Correct. what's the normal phases of this, you know, yeah. in the weeks or the days that this sure. might occur? Yeah. So let's start with the start of the cycle, okay? Although we are going to end with another, sorry, menstruation. So let's start with kind of menstruation phase. So menstruation phase is, of course, when the shedding is occurring, but actually the body is preparing for the next cycle already. Okay, so that so what ha is happening is, as I told you, the estrogen's fallen to a critical level, not to support the lining anymore. But now this feedback that the estrogen is now low has gone back to the brain again and to the pituitary gland to start releasing follicle-stimulating hormone again. So follicle-stimulating hormone will again start uh, uh, being secreted and a new cycle starts. So usually, now we talk about a 28-day cycle, but of course it'll vary. It'll vary because everyone will have their own kind of clock or their bodies will be set to a particular rhythm or a cycle. So some individuals may have cycles. When we talk about a cycle, we talk uh, about uh, the beginning of or the start of one period to the start of the next, not the end. Okay, not the end of a period to the beginning of the next. So that means a 28-day cycle, which is usually the average. doesn't mean everybody will have a 28-day cycle. It'll be maybe 30 for some, 24 for another, 35 for another. Uh, and within that cycle, few days before or after is also very normal. Okay, so, but on an average, it'll be two weeks to ovulation. and two weeks to the after ovulation to the next period. So when we're talking about the phases, the follicle phase, which is the first phase up to ovulation, and the luteal phase, that means the second phase after ovulation, that tends to be about two weeks and fairly stable, whereas the follicle phase, that means up to ovulation, can vary. So therefore, yeah, you can have slightly different cycles, and some variability is not uncommon. I think that's really important for people to know because some people, I had friends, especially when I was younger, that would have their periods exactly 
on the same time every month on the 29th day and their period would come and it would be you know three or three or four days and they would come off and mine was personally speaking from a personal experience was very different very irregular um and very and very heavy so what about anyone who's listening that's thinking actually my periods are very irregular and that really worries me why would people be having irregular periods and is that a cause of concern it may not be or often it's not a cause for concern but that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be addressed or understood okay because mm-hmm. it may mean something may not be very relevant to the current state uh, of life, but may mean something for the future. So I'm going to explain. Often the cause of irregular periods is an absence of regular ovulation. Okay, so I'm good. You know how I explained uh, the period to ovulation and after ovulation. So if ovulation hasn't occurred in that cycle, then there is no progesterone. So because progesterone comes in only after ovulation. So then what we get is uh, the lining just has kept growing under the influence of some estrogen. But that fall, you know, that, that rhythm and that fall is not at a particular time. But as it carries on, it starts becoming, the lining starts becoming unstable and starts shedding, but may shed erratically. So the first sign perhaps of not ovulating consistently is an irregularity of period. But it is important to understand that irregularity uh, doesn't mean uh, having cycles which say came four days before an expected time or four days after. Irregularity means, uh, say, for example, having very prolonged intervals between the two or having extremely short intervals or not really knowing when the uh, periods are going to occur. The other reason, or there are several reasons, but another reason why periods may be irregular is other sources of bleeding. For example, um, yes, ovulation is happening, but there is something else that is causing the appearance of some blood loss from time to time, such as sometimes blood can come from the cervix. There is a condition called ectropion in the cervix where the cells lining the external surface of the cervix changes and it becomes more fragile and can bleed easily, for example, after sexual intercourse. And so therefore, these irregular spottings may also uh, cause the uh, sort of or, or lead to appearance of irregularity because there is sort of unscheduled bleeding every now and then some women may experience a bleeding in uh, between so mid cycle so around ovulation just because there is a peak and a sudden change in the hormonal levels it might lead to some shedding some minimal shedding of that lining um then there might be other very benign events like polyps. Polyps are little growths in the lining or in the cervix, uh, which may cause unscheduled bleeding. Okay, So that means if periods are irregular, it is important to seek some attention and not just put it to, oh, it's just normal, and understanding. So let someone work out, like the GP work out, is this true irregularity and does it need to be addressed? So irregularities or absence of ovulation is 
quite common immediately or in the years following puberty. Say, for example, for two to three years after the onset of periods, because the cycles haven't quite, the rhythm hasn't quite set in, and ovulation may not be consistent. And if that happens, that's not a cause for worry. Yes, because it will usually eventually settle. But if it carries on far beyond that period, so for example, if an individual has started menarche, so we call the onset of periods menarche, the scientific term for it, and uh, has at the age of 12, and but at the age of 16, it's still irregular. So it, it is then important to see, okay, you know, what, what's going on? Let me get uh, it checked out. That's really important. And I think it's also quite a topical question where people have come off their pill and maybe they've started their pill quite early at 15, 16 in the hormone contraceptive pills, what I'm talking about there. Um, and some people say that your periods can become irregular or go back to when you were younger. Is that, tr- is that a true statement? Is that, can that happen? Uh, it's not actually about going back to post-puberty. So what may happen is now the pill or some form of contraceptive, uh, oral contraceptives, uh, it may be the combined pill or the progesterone-only pill. So the use of these are also quite common in the postmenarchal. that means after puberty, to to regulate these irregularities because unscheduled irregular bleeding is quite pro- can be problematic in terms of you know just organizing one's life and being you know say somebody has a sports event and doesn't know when they're going to have a period so sometimes to regulate uh, or to also control heaviness of the periods or control painful periods they are often used but so therefore they may have been used when regularity of cycles haven't quite established. So you're right. So when they have been on the pill, they may have had regular withdrawal bleeds bleeds from the pill. And when they have stopped the pill, they may have reverted to their usual status. That means if there is regularity, then yes. But if in the background, they have other, say, conditions that predisposes them, say, to not ovulating regularly. And in there, you know, there are several factors. I'm talk, I'm, we are going to talk about weight later. So it mm-hmm. may revert, therefore, or it may expose the true status of the cycles. So it's not quite that it's reverting back to puberty, but it's just, uh, you know, sort of re- removing the kind of lid to what is happening uh, or what was uh, in the background. I think that's really important to to discuss because there's so many people have so many concerns regarding hormonal contraceptive um, pills or whether it's an injection or a, or a coil or whatever it is, whatever form that they'd like to go on. Um, and before we just pop on to the rest of the menstrual cycle, do you have any advice for anyone who is a little bit worried about taking that step to a hormonal contraceptive? So first of all, of course, any use of hormonal contraception will be preceded by a discussion with a medical professional. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, the history will be taken and any cautions or uh, contraindications to use of hormones, all that will be evaluated, family history. So that means 
a hormonal contraceptive use may be proposed or recommended based on the weighing up of benefits and risks. If benefits outweigh the risks, of course, you know, it's therefore safe to take. I mean, there are certain concerns that somehow the hormones themselves will cause some hormonal disturbances for them, like permanent. That's not the case. Because essentially what these hormones are doing is playing around with that that axis which I described, you know, where the signals are coming, they're coming to the ovary, then from the ovary to the uterus. It's just interrupting some of these signals temporarily. It's not actually causing any long-term effects from a hormonal perspective, okay? So it's not hormones or the use of these hormones causing hormonal problems, actually. But obviously, there can be some contraindications. So in terms of concerns, so the concerns, of course, if you have concerns, they they need to express or address them with a medical professional. And there is some generic advice, for example, the likes of what we are describing. But it is important to appreciate and understand that individuals will vary. We will have our own set of background risks. So that means what is applicable to one individual may not be applicable to another. So it needs to be discussed. And um, and if and it's a collaborative decision. And if it's deemed safe by the medical professional, then one should have, you know, no concern about uh, using hormonal pills. Because as I said, it's about weighing up benefits and risks. It's about being able to live lives and, you know, do the things one needs to do uh, and not be restricted. Absolutely. And I think we always speak about, and I do myself as well at the BWI Collective, that everybody is individual. And that is something that's very important. And I do always emphasize to go and speak to your GP or a medical professional in their field, rather than Googling it or trying to figure it out for yourself, because sometimes it can be a huge minefield and making sure you're getting the correct advice is really, really important. So I think that's a really important point just to reiterate there from from you, Efra. So following this, what is hormonal imbalance? Because this is a topic that is discussed constantly in different magazines or on social media or between friends. And I think it can be misunderstood in so many ways. So would you be able to describe what it really means when you have a hormonal imbalance and how do you know? Okay, so any deviation from what we described in terms of signals coming from the hypothalamus, which is the GnRH, the gonadotropin hormone-releasing hormone, pituitary gland, the ovary, and the uterus, corpus luteum. So any deviation from these events will be classed very loosely as a hormonal imbalance. Now, sometimes, you know, it conjures up a very worrisome picture. Often it's not going to be the case. Often it's going to be just a temporary thing, okay? Um, So uh, one of the commonest hormonal imbalance will be uh, anovulation. That means absence of ovulation, such as a common condition, a fairly common condition called polycystic ovary syndrome. You may have heard about it. It's quite common. 
So in polycystic ovary syndrome, now polycystic ovaries means lots of follicles in the ovaries. And we see that in ultrasound. Now that's very different. That is not worrisome. Syndrome means there are other features such as irregularity of periods. So this hormonal imbalance is due to the absence of ovulation or absence of regular ovulation that leads to not having progesterone because progesterone will only be released after ovulation. So that is one of the common hormonal imbalances that will manifest in the form of irregular periods. What else can happen? Uh, the other things, I mean, with polycystic ovary syndrome, there are other metabolic things as well, such as, you know, if there is so weight gain in the background, it makes the body uh, quite resistant to insulin, then that it, it has other effects uh, in terms of kind of long-term health, makes one predisposed to, for example, diabetes. Yeah. So we're not going to kind of go into that, you know, otherwise we'll digress. <laughs> Uh, but essentially, not having progesterone means irregular periods. But also, what it means is that the lining is not getting exposed to progesterone, and it needs to. And the lining does need to shed regularly for the lining to remain healthy, the womb lining. So that means if there are long periods of absences uh, from shedding, that could cause some changes in the lining that may become problematic in the future. Now, this is very distinct from absence of periods that comes as a result of being on certain type of contraception, such as the mini pill or the progesterone-only pill or the Mirena coil or the Depo-Provera injection. There, the period is absent because of absence of ovulation, but also, very crucially, the thinning of the lining of the womb. So the lining is thin, and that's why there's nothing to shed, and that's why there's no period. That's Therefore, the lining is actually protected, you know, that is not a concern. I'm talking about the lining needing to shed in the absence of using any hormones. So these are sort of important features. Now, there are other hormones and other, apart from estrogen, progesterone, and of course, testosterone. So estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, they are all released by the ovary primarily, but there are other sources of release as well. For example, some form of estrogen is also released from the fat cells under our skin. Okay, and there is another hormone called prolactin, again, released from our pituitary gland. And if that hormone is elevated, then we will get uh, absence of ovulation and irregular periods too. Then we have got another hormone called the, you know, the uh, thyroxine hormone that's released from our thyroid gland. And if we have an imbalance of that hormone as well, that can also manifest in the form of some menstrual disturbances. One of which is if we have very or very underactive thyroid, menstruation can become heavy. So. So that means the menstruation and, and the pattern of menstruation can have clues about what's happening with the hormones. And also when hormones are you know, up and down or they do not have this uh, rhythm, they will manifest in the form of irregularity. And you said that very um, 
you know, the up and down movement that you can get with your hormones um, and your periods and your cycle. Now, a lot of people talk about that in the terms of their mood as well and how they're feeling. Sure. And a lot of people then get worried and think, cool, there's something going on with my hormones. Now, could that be an indicator or is that merely just your cycle and maybe that that is the phases that your cycle is yourself going through? Would you be able to explain around that? Sure. Because PMS sure. is a huge one. Absolutely. No, of course, hormones have a very uh, sort of very uh, profound effect on our mood. And that is not just for females, for males as well. So that means testosterone is important for mood and feeling of well-being for men and women, although women will have a lower, much lower level of testosterone. Uh, But yes, and therefore, uh, for uh, sort of the mood to change depending on peaks and troughs of hormones is not uncommon. How it is manifest, that means the degree of severity, will vary in different individuals because at the end of the day, it is an interaction. So how we respond to these signals, how the body responds to the signals uh, will vary. And it's also what we call multifactorial. Yes, we are predisposed to these mood changes, but there are several factors. Say, in our lifestyle or the work we do or, you know, our day-to-day life will also have an influence. That means if we already have, uh, say, a stressful job or something that, you know, causes constant stress, then on top of that, we have the peaks and troughs, you know, when the, so that the body may become more susceptible. Okay, so yes, no, absolutely, it is felt, and it's obviously a more recognized feature in females. That means so, therefore, for people who have these estrogen, progesterone peaks and troughs, they will have, oh, they will appreciate this more because they will know when they are in tune with their bodies and their moods that yes, I feel different and different. Uh, in, in the various stages of my cycle. And is it important to now point out of when that might occur, like when you might be feeling more anxious, you might be more clumsy, you might feel more teary or emotional. Um, I think that's really important because I, I do always recommend a lot of people to write down their cycle so they can start actually seeing when this might occur. So they're more aware and then they're less anxious that this these emotions are occurring. Yes. Just like with everything else, you know, when you're prepared, you know it might come, but not with a form, you know, hopefully not with trepidation, but you can take some measures. So with that, you know, you're forewarned and you're forearmed. Uh, it's usually before a period. So that means when there's withdrawal of estrogen and progesterone, because estrogen is a mood elevator. So people feel good when their estrogen is high. And as the estrogen, you know, declines or plummets uh, towards the end of the cycle, their mood changes can be quite significant, both estrogen and progesterone. But there is another thing. So there's another thing that uh, causes a bit of discomfort, and that is bloatedness, which is very much a part of the premenstrual syndrome that people talk about. Uh, And progesterone actually slows down the movement of the gut. So it is quite common, therefore, to feel bloated. But again, when the menstruation starts, you know, there may be sort of of slightly uh, different feelings. So often 
these uh, the 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 effect on the mood in a more adverse fashion will be prior to menstruation, maybe at the beginning of the menstruation, and as a new cycle kicks in, there will be uh, sort of the resolution of symptoms. I think that's a really important one to discuss because it, I have read in a lot of places that it's up to thirty percent of women that really suffer with PMS. So there is another one that I keep hearing a lot called PMDD, which is severe premenstrual dysphoric disorder. If I've said that correctly, Correct. please let me know if I haven't said that right. Yeah. Um, and that can really well it's it's meant to say that it's going to impair long term emotional and physical symptoms that can last weeks into your period and after and it can be linked with symptoms such as depression and severe anxiety now if people are suffering with this what do you suggest and and why might people be suffering with such extreme ends of 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 pmdd yeah it absolutely exists uh, so some form of premenstrual symptoms and not always a syndrome. So PMS often refers to a syndrome, which will be a constellation of features that always tends to occur, is quite common and perhaps manageable. But yes, it can manifest in quite severe forms, especially, say, with extreme anger leading to sort of aggression or extremely low mood that affects day-to-day life, relationships, friendships, and general relationships with the family. Yes, it can be quite debilitating. And it may be um, uh, sort of associated more with people who who are already susceptible. You know, I was talking about kind of the background risks where, say, this condition already uh, exists. For example, if someone's already prone to depression or prone to sort of ups and downs of moods, you know, they're different kind of conditions in mental health that that leads to, you know, uh, ups and huge ups and downs. And therefore, under the effect of these hormonal changes, they may be quite pronounced. So they may happen. So one of the things is to obviously address what is in the background, address triggers, and also may need medical intervention. Okay, may need medical intervention, one of which may be to use hormones to maintain a stability so that there are no peaks and troughs. So something like simple, like the a combined pill, for example, that has a certain dose of estrogen and progesterone, but it's taken in a continuous fashion so that there is no ovulation, it stops ovulation, and you do not get, and, and the signals also back to the pituitary is just uniform. So you avoid the huge pre-peaks and traps or may need antidepressants to just tide over these uh, extremes. So for any woman that might suffer or have suffered with PMS or more severely with PMDD, there could be other factors as well that, you know, your menstruation and your hormones can really affect such as libido is quite a common one. Some people might have a loss of libido and by that I mean sex drive. Can we talk about that this could be quite normal for some people and maybe not to overly worry that there's something wrong with them? Because I think as soon as people might lose their sex drive, they can have alarm bells ringing off or their partner might have alarm bells ringing off that something's wrong with their relationship. So can it cause a loss of libido? I wouldn't say loss, but 
You see, uh, hormones do determine libido and mm. it is natural in the sense around ovulation, so it's nature's way, see, around ovulation, when the estrogen levels are high, the libido will be at its highest because nature wants people to have sexual intercourse at that time and for a pregnancy to occur, yes? But as the hormones fall, so that means when estrogen hormone is at its lowest, yes, libido will fall, but that is normal variation. It is also important to recognize that the largest sex organ in the body is the brain. So how the brain feels will often determine, you know, uh, one's sort of um, interest in uh, sort of sexual intimacy. And um, so when, if someone has PMS, for example, of course, at the same time, they will also not feel that sex drive or the, uh, and, and that doesn't therefore mean that, uh, you know, there is a, 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 a anything worrisome for the partner in terms of, you know, where the relationship is going. One thing I would like to mention here is one of the treatments of PMS or PMDD is actually, it's collaborative, and the management rather is collaborative. And it is important for partners, family members, friends to understand this as well, and know that this can happen. It'll pass and how they can actually work with the individual to accommodate this. And I mentioned sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy can be manifest in so many ways. It is just penetrative, you know, sex is not mm. the only way of intimacy. There can be other ways in which uh, the person going through PMS may wish to uh, express um, so may just want cuddles, for example, okay? That is still, I think, romantic and sexual intimacy. So it's about just looking at, I think, things in a slightly different way or adapting that mm. uh, sexual intimacy may vary or the expressions may vary throughout the menstrual cycle rather than in uh, being only in one way. I think that's so, so important because, um, yeah, I mean, even a hug that can ignite your dopamine levels quite quickly. Um, and that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. So the understanding and also the triggers, you know, anything that can cause stress, for example, let's not discuss, say, for example, if finances, you know, trigger um, <laughs> yeah. stress then not talk about finances and mortgages at that time. You know, it's sort of simple things. I know we are probably, you know, uh, saying it's sort of semi, you know, kind of comedic way, but it is true. It's day-to-day -day mm. living and you can avoid certain triggers. There are some things that are beyond our control, but some things that are within the, our control and we can be mindful. We can be mindful. And also, sorry, I did discuss um, management. Sorry, I'm... Bouncing, but you know the questions also trigger some thoughts. The management yes. is so important. Everyone so, wants to know how to manage. Absolutely. So I talked about treatment, but we we should talk more about management rather than just yes. treatment and medical interventions. Anything that helps someone relax. So although I'm not an acupuncturist, you know I'm a, you know I practice Western medicine, but anything that helps relax. It might be some form of therapy. It might be a mindfulness exercise. It might be acupuncture, you know, alternative mm. therapies 
things may help. And important, actually, to think about diet. So what excites us, you know, so reduction of our caffeine intake in that time. So all these little things or, you know, uh, alcohol intake. For example, alcohol can numb and provide a certain sense of kind of um, equilibrium during the period of inebriation, but then you have a crash later on. Therefore, just being mindful, being hydrated, all these simple things do play very crucial roles in management of PMS and PMDD. I'm so pleased that you mentioned that because that's that is obviously um, my area of where I of where I work, and we are going to follow on this episode with a with a nutritionist who who works with polycystic ovary syndrome um, and different um, you know different areas within within our hormone. I say hormone balance that sounds more fatty, but you know within our yeah. within women's health and it is very important to just be mindful. I think that is the biggest, the biggest takeaway that I always try to get people to understand is being more mindful. Um, and whether that's allowing yourself to take a break, which I think is the hardest thing, um, allowing yourself to breathe, which sounds so small and sounds very ineffective, but actually it's one of the most powerful and free techniques that we have to ourselves. And they can actually help more than we can imagine. So I think all of these things, as you said, it's really multifactorial, which means there's so many different factors impending on how we feel. And it's not always just one simple solution. Um, and that I think that is really important regarding our hormone imbalance. And also to allow ourselves to know that it's okay sometimes to not feel okay. I think especially with regards of busy lives, social media, always thinking that we have to be our best and it's really hard and that's a really big weight to carry on your shoulders to know that you've always got to be feeling your best or be showcasing your best and allowing yourself sometimes to think I don't feel great today and accepting that and seeing what you can do to help maybe that's taking time out or calling a friend can be really impactful so I think, as you said, management is so important. And um, I do know, as you said, acupuncture has helped a few friends of mine as well regarding regarding PMS. So following this, you know, something I read recently, and I, I would like to ask you because I have no idea if this is true, um, estrogen. Now we're talking about hormones still, and I thought this is quite good to follow on. But now we're coming into the summer, there's a lot of people suffering with hay fever and allergies. Now, is this true that does estrogen increase your histamine levels, which can effectively make your allergies worse? Is there any truth in that? Well, that is very interesting because, um, you know, estrogen receptors are found in different parts, including those structures that release estrogen, uh, sorry, mm. histamine. You're right. But a direct link hasn't been, you know, been very clear. So, you know, it, sometimes we extrapolate. For example, you find that yeah, women may be more susceptible to allergies than men or that allergies seem to uh, uh, reduce after menopause, you know, uh, sort of symptoms. So that has led to the thinking that maybe estrogen is uh, one of, one of you know, the uh, factors but it's quite difficult to establish. You know, again, it is going to be multifactorial, this. So it's, uh, I mean, and even if it were, I mean, there is no way you, you do, you, because 
estrogen is doing wonderful things to the body, keeping the bones healthy and, mm-hmm. you know, the general feeling of well-being, our cognition. So, of course, I mean, there may be, but we are not certain that there is a definite link. That's really important because I saw quite a few um, posts around that on social media. I think it's always really important to actually how much evidence is there behind these claims. Um, so there could be a link, but there's no direct causation that we know, which I think is very important to, to, to discuss. And before I kind of go on to how can we maintain our reproductive health, the last thing that I really want to ask, which is regarding symptoms, is our tummies and that is around the time of our period. Now, a lot of people can get more pronounced symptoms of IBS or IBD, um, such as Crohn's and colitis, but some people that might not even suffer with their tummies day to day could start seeing symptoms of diarrhea or maybe constipation around their period. Now, why is that? Why can it affect our gastro health? Yes. Uh, no, absolutely. So, some bloatedness is common premenstrually, as I had uh, discussed earlier, because the progesterone hormone slows down the gut to a certain extent. It slows down, actually. Uh, again, in, on, in the womb, it has the uh, one f- uh, property is uh, it also slows down womb contractions and is therefore helpful for you know, early pregnancy or even late pregnancy. But yes, so bloatedness can occur. Then in periods, so as the and as the uh, one of the causes of period pain is the contraction of the muscle of the womb, and during that time there may be other features, yes, such as either diarrhea or constipation. So it is linked to the hormones, but it's not the hormones directly causing these more significant symptoms, but it is causing an aggravation. So it's sort of lending those symptoms a helping hand, if you will. Yes, you you may uh, find nausea, vomiting. So there is actually one quite, not not extremely common, but one uh, symptom of PMS is vomiting. There's sort of vomiting premenstrually or at the time of the period. And constipation and you know diarrhea, but the treatment is the general treatment that we just discussed. But also, as I said, always the treatment of the background. So, if somebody's got the got colitis, got IBS, they will already have had uh, advice. Hopefully, they will already have had advice on their diet. So, it is again being mindful about their diet to keep the symptoms minimal or in control. Uh, at that time. But absolutely, there is an association. I think that puts people's mind at rest a lot, just to know that actually, Mm -hmm. this is a common occurrence. Can I also just address, I know, I become a bit wary about uh, talking about endometriosis. However, I think it is important to talk about endometriosis and bowel symptoms. Because Mm -hmm. painful periods, um, and sort of aggravation of bowel symptoms, such as uh, pain during opening bowels or feeling extremely bloated, can also be a sign of endometriosis. It's important to bear that in mind, and especially if also associated with very painful periods. So that means it's not about thinking, ah, this can happen, and it's normal almost, but if it is persistent, 
if it is debilitating, uh, it is important to get checked out uh, for endometriosis because then measures can be taken to control endometriosis. And that's actually a very important question that I haven't asked yet, but so many people suffer with period cramps. Um, I know I definitely do. Um, and I always need to put a hot water bottle over my stomach or have a warm bath, which can help soothe it and, t- and take neurofen. But what can people do? And why do we get such painful period cramps? Because some people I know, lucky people, don't get any period cramps at all and seem just seem to breeze through their period. <laughs> why is it that some people have get affected so much more worse with period pain? Menstrual cramps occur due to the contraction of the muscle of the womb. So just so when there is a period, of course the muscle, the womb muscle will contract to expel the bleeding. And this uh, leads to small interruptions in the blood supply for you know very brief periods, and therefore there can be this experience of pain. Like in labor, you know, there's there's a muscle contraction in labor. Of course, it's an extreme example, but in a very, very miniature form, this is what's happening. Uh, But other conditions can lead to aggravated pain. So if, if menstrual pain is not easily relieved by the measures you described or taking some pain relief and it's and it's increasing, it's important to have some medical attention and get checked out for conditions like endometriosis. In most cases, there will be no pathology. That means there's no condition leading. It is just all these uh, kind of uh, chemicals we call call prostaglandins that excite womb contraction that might be Mm. causing the pain. Uh, and also, if there is background pain, for example, if uh, someone already has IBS, for example, there may be more menstrual pain at that time. But it is important to, again, seek medical help for menstrual pain. If it is increasing in severity, it's debilitating, it's affecting quality of life. And I think that's really important to know that actually sometimes that pain can be so severe. And if, if you have been checked out and you know that there is no pathology behind it that actually that is okay. I think sometimes Correct. just knowing that these things happen and occur and because we're women, we're meant to just deal with it and get on with it. But actually hearing that, you know, these are normal occurrences can just put your mind at ease so much more. Um, I can't imagine what men would be like having a period. I don't know how they, I don't know if, they if they would cope. <laughs> I'm sure they have their own challenges Yes, we all do, you know, just part of being human. (laughs) Oh, that was a very good answer, I have to say. Um, So there's so many more things I'd love to ask, but I know that we're getting to the end of our, you know, of of our podcast. And before I go, I always like to ask a couple of quick fire questions because I like to Basically, what I want you to do, Efra, is answer true or false. Sure. So, and sometimes it can be very hard to answer just true or false because there's always a, a longer answer attached. But if possible, can um, we do true or false? Yes, we can. You're meant to have a period every month. False. It may not be every month. So that doesn't mean things are abnormal. Your sense of smell is increased during your period. Don't know. Ah, interesting. You gain weight during your period. 
falls is just before actually when you have water retention yes but as the period progresses these symptoms so it's just pre and immediately during the start of the period period sinking women who live together tend to synchronize their menstrual periods it's anecdotal false <laughs> oh i've always wanted to know if that's true or false um women have better spatial awareness straight after their period not sure uh but as estrogen increases yes you know you may get a bit more clarity kind of in your process thought processes uh but it's it's not definite and hormones can affect poor sleep correct ah i always thought that might be one i always tend to sleep have better times of sleep during my menstrual cycle and and, and less quality yeah. periods especially so. uh when again uh sleeplessness sleep disturbances uh, when the hormones are really low and also you know it deals with kind of or, or it links in with menopause so one of the other symptoms linked to menopause uh is is sleep disturbance so when the hormone levels fall you may get sleep disturbances so lastly I always like to ask how do you live well and be well? The answer can be very simple and you can I think make it as complicated uh, as you wish. But actually in simple terms and it's this this linked to reproductive health which is the context of our conversation today it is to actually um take care of ourselves which is simple things hydration having a balanced diet not being obsessive about our diet with either things you know excessive uh, sort of um focus on extremely healthy eating is also not beneficial can be counterproductive and mm. it is having enough exercise to let our endorphins you know come mm-hmm. it is those things that our bodies are meant to do our bodies are not meant to be sitting down you know our bodies mm. are meant to be moving around it mm-hmm. is having good thoughts it's about reading it's about being intellectually stimulated uh it's about um being in touch with nature you know it's about uh taking time away from our screens uh so it's everything that is linked to our physical mental health and therefore that leads to kind of reproductive health there's no kind of magic in this it's not taking fancy and multiple vitamins so only people who need to take vitamins are those who have an absorption problem healthy people eating a healthy diet don't need additional vitamins so uh yes the answer is simple but of course if we have been unlucky to have medical conditions then also it's about then adapting and i mean you know our bodies are amazing you know they can adapt they can and they need a bit of assistance they may need a bit of help they may need some help from the nutritionists or people who advise around health and well-being uh, but everyone can achieve a state of i think uh, a peace and uh that that feeling of well-being um that you can get it it, it may not always be easy you know there something like the pandemic who thought it would come mm-hmm. yes yeah. so it is not easy uh but one way is to build up those reserves as well 
that mm-hmm. we when in times of you know when in times of stability we try to build up all those reserves by doing all those things that i just mentioned getting a good background health so that health which means mental and physical that in the face of an adversity or something being thrown at us we have more reserve to cope with it and to not be afraid of talking to friends to talk to a therapist you know to to talk and to to uh, seek help. Thank you for sharing. I think that was one of the most wonderful answers we've received. And uh, I'm so pleased that you mentioned so many different things as opposed to just one. So that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you. Thank you for doing this uh, amazing work. Um, it's really important and uh, which is also why I kind of made sure I made time to be able to speak to you. And I feel that it is my duty as a medical professional to reach out to as many people as I can. So thank you very much for the opportunity. You really have. You really have. And this will be so useful to so many people listening to this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. Sadly, Effia doesn't have social media, so I can't put any links in the show notes regarding her further contact details. But I would advise to please seek medical advice from a GP if you have related to anything in this episode and you'd like to know anything more further and in depth. Until next week, I hope that you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.